similar to last week, I'm not uh, this morning because I'm trying to get a good audio recording and trying to minimize the number of programs I got running here on the computer. But I, um, I want to talk with you this morning about hope. I told you last week we were going to start a series on Christian hope, specifically from 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to do four lessons on that. And, and I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to preach about it this morning, this evening, next Sunday morning, next Sunday evening. I'm going to do four in a row that way. So this is the first time I've ever tried to do a series like that, but hopefully it works out. And it's going to be a little bit more complicated because we're going to be transitioning to the building uh, next next weekend. But hopefully if I do a good enough job this week, uh, I can build up some interest. So maybe maybe if y'all will come out for no other reason to hear uh, the third part of this in person. And then we'll go back to WebEx for the fourth part of it. But um, it's OK. Uh, I, I think these lessons all kind of stand together and they'll naturally kind of flow into one another. Um, and I, I, I want to talk before we even get into First Corinthians 15 this morning, I want to talk for just a second about why I want to talk about hope, because I think that um, hope is something that we have uh, underemphasized in our in our teachings uh, in 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 First Corinthians 15, verse two. Paul's going to say that it's possible to believe the gospel, but believe it in vain. And we're, we can talk about different ways how one might believe the gospel in vain. But one of the ways we can certainly do that is by um, having an incomplete foundation to our understanding of the gospel, right? If we say that we believe in Christ, but are we're not rooted in, in, in true faith and true trust in his promises, uh, then we'll be, we'll be fickle and we'll blow in the wind. If we uh, believe the gospel, but we have no love in our hearts, we won't win any converts. We won't uh, make any friends. We won't let anyone see the light of Christ. And I think if we have an improper understanding of hope, um, it becomes very easy for us to grow discouraged in this life. And we become um, little more stable than people in the world who are, are very susceptible to uh, the conditions, the material conditions that we find ourselves in as human beings in this life. And so I think that that a proper understanding of hope can give us uh, an extra dimension to our faith that allows us to see through the circumstances that we're going through right now. Uh, and and if I were going to give you an, an overview of where this series is going, and I've, I've called this series um, Harvest of Hope, the Resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, if I could summarize this in a sentence or two, what this whole series is about, it's this. It's that our lives are little imperfect seeds that are sown by God on the earth, and that our lives will be judged on whether or not those small seeds that were planted bore fruit for the master. All we're trying to do in this life is multiply the master's harvest. And then when the harvest comes, the, uh, the seeds who have been faithful will be transformed into something that we have not yet known, just as uh, when, when fruit is harvested in an agricultural sense, it never just stays fruit. It becomes food. It's transformed into some new thing. So we will be transformed in the last day. And that's where we're going to, to get to by the end of, of these four lessons. But in the first lesson, uh, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ a little bit first. And then in the second lesson, we're going to talk about the implications of Christ's resurrection for, uh, for us 
as, as people who hope to be resurrected from the dead ourselves one day. And then in the last two lessons, we'll talk about what the resurrection will be like. And specifically, we'll talk about the things that we know and the things that we don't know and how we can embrace both sides of that and be okay with everything that we know and everything that we don't know. But in this first lesson, I want us to focus in on the resurrection of Christ and specifically the centrality of that resurrection to the gospel that we preach. And so uh, without further preamble, let's just read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. So, and just to tell you where this lesson is going, there are going to be four points here. And because I don't have a PowerPoint, I'll, I'll just give these uh, to you right up front. Four points. The gospel is at the center of the Christian life. That's the first point. The second point is the resurrection is at the center of the gospel. The third point is that at the center of the resurrection is the presence of Christ in our lives. And the fourth point is that at the center of Christ's presence in our lives, there is a knowledge of the grace of God. So, again, at the center of the Christian life is the gospel. At the center of the gospel is the resurrection. At the center of the resurrection is the presence of Christ. And at the center of the presence of Christ is the knowledge of the grace of God. And so what does that mean? Well, in brief, it means that uh, the gospel is the center point of my life as a Christian. And the center point of that gospel is the resurrection, is the fact that Christ was raised. And when I've really reckoned with the fact that Christ was raised, I will sense, I, I will come to understand that Christ was not just raised at some distant point in the past, but he is raised continually. He reigns continually, and he is present in my life if I am a follower of him. And when I've taken that in, I can truly understand and be grateful for the grace that God has given me to be in the life of a sinner like me. And so this is an important foundation if we're going to understand our resurrection is Christ's resurrection and its centrality to our worldview and everything that we believe. So in verses 1 through 2, we see this first point, that the gospel is at the center of our lives. He's going to remind them of the gospel that he preached to them. And at this point in the letter, um, he's going to specifically address this issue that they have with, or some contingent of the Corinthian church has, 
with a denial of the of the resurrection. And so he's going to begin with this appeal to the gospel, the gospel that he preached to them, which which they received and in which they stand. The, the Corinthians were having a problem with forgetting the fundamentals of the gospel, and this is the same danger for us. The world we live in, uh, I don't have to tell you, uh, thinks that the gospel is old-fashioned, thinks that we've outgrown it, thinks that we don't need it. But we need reminders of the gospel, even we that consider ourselves to be familiar with it and, and, and we who have known it and, and read it our, li- our, our, our whole lives. We need reminders uh, of the gospel that we stand in, the gospel in which we stand, because it is an ongoing relationship that we have with God through this gospel. Um, we need to be reminded of, of these fundamentals. The gospel isn't just something we accept once and we're done. Um, it's an ongoing relationship we have with the person and with the teachings of Jesus. Um, we see that in, in verse 1, part B, uh, in which you which you have received, in which you stand, and in the beginning of verse 2, and by which you are being saved. So our salvation in the gospel is ongoing. Paul doesn't say, by which you were saved, although that might be an accurate way to put it. He says, by which you are being saved. So it's an ongoing process. Our salvation is continual. It's an active walk, and we're being made new each day if we're walking in Christ. But he also uh, points out that our belief can be in vain, as we've said, if, if we are mistaken about some of these fundamentals. He says, uh, hold fast to the word I preached with you, or I, the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So in no uncertain terms, our belief can be in vain. We can believe um, we can believe for for the wrong reasons, and our belief becomes malformed. We can we can believe out of selfish motivation, and our belief gains us nothing. But we can also believe for the right reasons, um, but get wrong information, and our sincerity can actually become a barrier to the truth. If we have bad information, we can we can believe uh, sincerely uh, and 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 with with a uh, with an open heart all day long, but we we do not. Uh, have the true gospel. But here, Paul wants uh, to assure them uh, that this specific teaching regarding the resurrection that they've received from him is true and is of apostolic authority. So he's going to break it down again for them. And the way he does this makes it very clear that these are specific terms. He's not just phrasing this anyway. This is, uh, this is a, a sort of a formula that he received. We see that in verse 3. And here we start to get into the idea of the resurrection being at the center of or the heart of the gospel. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So let's just stop there for a second. Paul is not the author of this. Paul received it. So sometimes uh, people want to act as though um, Paul did, uh, you know, was really the one who who got Christianity started, got that ball rolling, and they act as though Paul did did Christ some great favor, um, and he made Christianity himself, and that uh, really it was the brilliance of Paul in spreading these letters around that got this ball rolling. But Paul didn't come up with this himself. He received it uh, from others. Paul said he received this gospel. He didn't come up with it himself. This is the gospel that Christians already believed at the time he received it. It's the, it's the gospel that he received uh, from Christ himself. We receive that which was received by Paul. And it's authoritative not because 
Paul gave it to the church, but because Christ gave the church as a means of proclaiming the, uh, proclaiming the gospel to the world. Uh, the power is not in Paul, but the power is in Christ. So Christ, uh, so, so um, this was received by Paul. This was not an invention of Paul. And then we begin to see what, well, what was it that Paul received? The first thing, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Um, if you turn back quickly to Isaiah 53, and I think it's, it's useful to do so, turn back quickly to, uh, hold your finger in 1 Corinthians 15, and turn back to Isaiah 53. This is just one example of, of the prophetic literature, which, which called ahead to a time uh, when, when all the burdens and all the sins of the world would be put upon one man. Psalm 53, uh, let's read verses 10 through 12. Psalm 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be uh, acquaint, uh, accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Our Christ bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. And it was prophesied that he would take our sins on himself, and he did. But he did not stop there in verse 4. He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul uses that phrase again, in accordance with the scriptures, as a point of emphasis. All of these things not only happened, but were prophesied to happen. It was also prophesied that he would be um, accepted and justified by God in his being raised. Um, turn to, uh, to flip back quickly to Psalm 16, Psalm 16 and verse 10. Psalm 16 and verse 10, <clears throat> quick verse says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. And of course, this is a Psalm of David, but as is so often the case, David's Psalms have a messianic overtone, and David himself often stands in as a type of, of Christ in the, in the messianic Psalms. And so there is this idea in the, in the, in the Psalms and in the prophetic literature um, that, that no corruption would come uh, to the body of the Holy One sent by God. And so Christ uh, died for the sins of many, but he did not stay dead. He was raised on the third day also in accordance with the scriptures. And not only that, but in verse 5, he appeared in bodily form to the apostles. He appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve in verse 5. So he leaves no doubt about the nature of his resurrection. Jesus appeared to uh, to apostles in his recognizable bodily form. And, and part of what makes an apostle is not just being around for the earthly ministry of Jesus, the fleshly ministry of Jesus in, in his body, but also seeing him in his resurrected form. 
This is one of the things that Paul is going to cite in a few verses as uh, evidence to, to his claim of apostleship. But it is also central to our experience of faith, in a sense, to see Christ in his resurrected form. Not in, not in a literal sense. Christ doesn't mis miraculously appear to us today, but we look upon him in faith. We see that he continues uh, to reign. One of the things we learn is that even though he is ascended, he is reigning and he is with us. His presence is still with us. And when we go forward, uh, he tells us, I am with you always. So that's something that we have to begin to really um, take in to understand the resurrection of Christ. It's, it's not just that he was raised up so that he would be approved by God, although that is part of it. He was raised up so that he would be with us always in any time and in any place. And then we begin to see in verses 6 through 8, what this means for us is that the presence of Jesus is with us always, and that the presence of Jesus in our lives is of first importance to our understanding of the resurrection. The resurrection becomes an extremely personal thing to us when we understand that he is still present in our lives. It, Paul says in verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So it, it wasn't just uh, chosen people. It wasn't just apostles that the Lord appeared to, but the Lord appeared to 500 people, and we're not given any sort of distinguishing characteristics about them other than that they're brothers, not 500 brothers to each other, but 500 of our brothers, our brothers in Christ. So Christ appeared to common people in his resurrection, not just apostles. And that was important enough that he did it that way. It wasn't just uh, these heroes of faith that Christ appeared to, but Christ appeared to average believers who had put their trust in him. And so we don't have to be giants of faith. We don't have to be heroic saints uh, conquering new lands uh, for, for Christ in order to see him clearly, in order for him to anchor uh, our lives and drive our purposes. Um, putting Christ in the driver's seat is not a superhuman feat. Uh, it only requires trust in his ability to drive. Um, and, and if we're Christians, make no mistake, he should be driving our lives. So Christ appeared to common people in his resurrection, not just the apostles. And then in verse 7, we see he appeared to James. That would be James, the brother of Jesus, and all the apostles, um, not just the 12, because we know there were apostles besides the 12. There was uh, Matthias, who was appointed in Judas's place. Uh, there was Paul, who was appointed to his position later. And so this was not an exclusive uh, small circle that Christ appeared to. It was not something that was hidden or mysterious uh, only to the apostles, but rather it was something that was publicly known. Christ was raised, and he had appeared to his brothers. And so at, just as Christ is our brother in this walk, Christ sympathizes with us, Christ is our friend, he has shown himself to us. And when we don't know the way in this life, when we're confused, when we're lost, we look to him. We look to our, uh, to our, our brothers in Christ, who also we, we know share with us in this struggle. They're our peers with us in this walk. But Christ is our ultimate peer, our ultimate friend, the one who understands above anyone else in this life. And so it's a blessing to have 
uh, Christ as our as our head, Christ as our partner, Christ as our friend, Christ as our brother, Christ as our king. Last of all, Paul makes this very personal in verse 8. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And again, he Paul's citing this as, as uh, sort of a subtle evidence of his own apostleship. He has seen Christ in his resurrected form. He has been in the presence of Christ. But again, I think there's there is a sense in which when I read verse 8, it rings as very personal to me too. Now, I haven't seen Christ in the way that, that, that Paul has. I haven't been blinded on the road to Damascus. I haven't uh, been you know, knocked down and picked back up literally in that way by the glory of God. But I know somehow what that feels like. I can imagine what Paul felt on the road to Damascus. Because on some miniature scale, we've all experienced that same thing. We've all been blind to the gospel, to the truth, to the truth of Christ, to the beauty of his gospel and his message. And then one day we've all had the scales fall away. We've all seen the truth and we've been floored by it. And there's no going back. There's no changing it. We're changed forever by the power of of the gospel. We've been knocked down and picked back up all in one motion by the glory of the coming of our Christ. He has appeared to us as one untimely born, not that he has appeared to us uh, literally, but rather that we have the ability to see him. We have the ability to understand God in his person through Christ. This was something that was not graspable for the majority of human history. Under the old law, uh, wise men of God, men of faith, strove after it and saw it as through a veil. We get to see it in our new covenant, unobscured. We get to share in the covenant uh, of, of our God. We get to partake in his divine nature. We get to taste of his glory before we enter into it. because. Uh, the glory uh, that we are that we enter into when we enter into Christ in this life is the same glory that we will revel in and glory in forever in eternity. We are entering into our reward before we go to it when we accept Christ. Christ offers us life abundant. We can have the best life possible here. We can have the best life possible there, and in fact, the two are one and the same. The presence of Christ at the center of the Christian life is one of the greatest blessings, and it's a direct consequence of the fact that our Savior is not a dead Savior. Death could not hold our Savior. There have been many men in the history of the world who've claimed to be wise teachers, who've claimed to be prophets, who've claimed to be saviors and liberators. And they all died, and they all stayed dead except for one. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. That is the one we follow. No one has ever made the such bold claims as our Christ. He has conquered death, not just for himself, but for us. We have hope 
to conquer death and be resurrected in the same manner as him. And this is something we'll talk about more tonight when we talk about um, what the, what Christ's resurrection means for us uh, and what the resurrection of the dead uh, will mean for us. Um, but it, it, it is a, a consequence of his resurrection, Christ's presence in our lives, um, and it's a great comfort that we have. But then when we fully take in the knowledge of that presence of Christ, it, it humbles us because we understand how undeserving we are and what a great grace that has been bestowed on us. We see how wide the gap is between God's goodness and our wretchedness, and it forces us to grow all the more in faith. Paul, uh, elsewhere in, in 1 Corinthians, hits the famous triad of faith, hope, love. And I think these things are, um, you can think of those three words as being the fundamentals of the gospel, because there are three elements of, of our lives that are that cannot be removed. If you take one away, the entire message of Christ uh, falls apart. We, when we when we miss one part of the uh, 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 of that triad, we're going to have a a rickety house, so to speak, if we're conceiving of our faith as a house. And part of this understanding. Uh, of hope, uh, it, it circles back into both faith and love, right? Because when we understand that we've been offered this hope, despite our great sinfulness, it reinforces our, our, our faith or our trust in the God who offers us that hope. And it reinforces our love for that God and our love for our fellow man made in his image. So these things all reinforce each other and, and, and play off of each other in an endless loop. But knowledge of the grace of God is the consequence of seeing his continuing presence in our lives despite our failings, despite our sinfulness. Because Paul says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul knew what it meant to be saved by the grace of God. Paul was the greatest opponent that the church had. In the, in the church's early history. And he was never fully trusted by, by, by early Christians. It, I mean, there were even well into his ministry, in, into the writing of his letters, there are Christians who doubt him because of his background, because of where he came from. And Paul never lets this be an impediment to his mission. Rather, it, it propels him all the more, he's going to say. He says, I worked harder than any of them because of it. Paul knew what it meant to be um, the least in the kingdom and be raised to a high station by God's grace, by the gift of God. It wasn't because Paul was great. Paul persecuted the church. Paul certainly had tools that could be used for the kingdom of God and which God did use for the kingdom. And we all have tools that can be used for the kingdom and that God is trying to use for the kingdom. But it wasn't uh, Paul wasn't using those tools for the kingdom of his own power. Paul didn't wasn't able to see the way of his own volition. It had to be shown to him. He knew what it meant to be wretched. He knew what it meant to have guilt. He knew what it meant to be fully aware and clear-eyed about how condemned we were in sin. 
But he says in verse 10, and I love this so much, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. God's grace is the only reason for our whole existence. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, we are what we are. We're Christians called into his life out of the world. That is a blessing in and of itself. It's one of the greatest blessings we could ever count. By the grace of God, we are being made into a new creature. By the grace of God, we have not remained where we began. By the grace of God, we are being transformed into something new, something which we will not fully realize until we end our lives here on this earth. And his grace toward me was not in vain. We're being changed. We're being made new. So don't waste it. Don't waste the grace that God has given us. Rather be people driven by purpose, driven uh, by glorifying God. The idea of glorifying God is, is big in the scripture. It's everywhere, um, and especially in the New Testament. But I think that we've maybe made this, the idea of glorifying God a little bit too complicated because we, we want to think of it as, well, when I come to church, that's my spiritual life. And then everything else is my secular life. and uh, so I, I, I give God a few hours of my time a week, and then that's, that's my relationship with God. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, we, we've already let the, 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 the secularists win by dividing our life up in that way. Instead, it's that, no, I am a Christian. Everything that I do, every moment of my life should reflect on my creator, should be an example of my, of my, of my Lord's goodness and his grace. So whatever it is that our hand finds to do, let's do it with our might. Whatever we're doing, be the best that for Christ that we can possibly be. This is what I actually think God wants from us when he, when, when he uh, threads all these uh, ideas through the scripture about our, our actions bring him glory. Because Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul didn't sit around wondering what he should do. The work that he needed to do was obvious. The problem, uh, and, and I think to us, all of, to all of us, the work that we need to do is obvious. The problem is uh, our lives are too short to do all the work that is set before us. So how do we move forward? How do we do it? We rely on the grace of God and we make sure that we are, we are doing everything out of this motivation, everything that we do for the glory of God. If we're doing something that would not bring God glory, we should not do it. If we're doing something that is not motivated by the glory of God, we should think, how do I do this for God's glory? How do I do this in such a way that it will bring glory to God? Even very mundane, innocuous things that we do, um, if done excellently, if done with integrity, if done with dignity, can reflect on God's glory. And we need to be looking for all those, those, those ways that we can show God to the world, show Christ to the world. Everything that we do for the glory of God and do should be done with our might in the same way that Paul says he works harder than any of them. So we should be motivated to everyone 
if for no other reason than that it's a reflection on our Christ. And he ends in verse 11, this section anyway of the chapter, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. The resurrection of Christ's place in the gospel was a, a primary teaching of the early church because our Christian hope rests on it. We're going to talk a little bit more about that this evening. But Paul is saying in verse 11, uh, I preach this to you, the other apostles and, and, and uh, uh, approved teachers uh, who, who teach the truth and the true gospel have preached this to you. And whoever you're hearing it from, this is the truth. This is what you should believe. Our Christ is not a dead Christ. Our Christ was raised. And if you miss everything else, seize on that idea. Our Christ is raised, living, and reigning. Let's uh, end our lesson by turning to, uh, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Um, Luke chapter 24, and I want to read verses 1 through 7, uh, just to remind us of the scene that this is all rooted in. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 7. And on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, uh, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when, they were, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. Delivered into the hands of sinful men, crucified, and raised on the third day. Raised on the third day. The temple of our Lord's body was torn down by men. They threw their worst at it. They did their worst to it. They called him every name in the book. They spat on him. They beat him. They humiliated him. They nailed him to a cross and made him to suffer a slow and painful death. And he could not be held by it. He could not be conquered by it. Three days later, as he had said, he made a new temple. He rose it up of his of uh, he rose he rose a new temple approved by God. A new temple for us to enter into and to convene with. This is our new covenant that we enter into. The person of Christ, not just as a historical person who lived long ago, but as the man who beat death and who has still beat death who reigned and who reigns and who is the center of our lives and whose resurrection is the center of our gospel. <clears throat> That's all I had this morning, but please come back this evening. We're going to uh, take on a slightly bigger chunk of 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to talk about verses 12 through 34 this evening. So we're going to cover quite a bit of ground uh, and some of it, we're not going to have clear answers about everything. 
but I want to talk about the implications of Christ's resurrection for our resurrection. What does Christ being raised mean for us? And Paul is going to answer that question very directly here in 1 Corinthians 15. I know that um, this is material that was hit recently in classes uh, taught by Mark, and uh, which I'm sure, not trying to step on Mark's toes here, I'm sure he did a great job in those classes. Uh, but it, it's such a, uh, part of this is because I'm, uh, going through an eschatology class right now with Mike Wilson that he's teaching online. Uh, this is on Tuesday afternoons. We're doing this. And uh, uh, this was a passage that came up that he wanted me to do an exposition of. Uh, and so I said, well, that's perfect because I can just uh, turn it into a sermon for uh, uh, or a series of sermons for uh, for Vacaville. And I'll give, uh, give them the uh, short version in, in class here in a few weeks. Um, but, uh, I think that this is a subject that's been woefully, uh, undercovered and woefully undertaught, uh, which is, um, how do we prepare people to die? How do we prepare people, um, to, well, how do we prepare people to die and how do we teach people what they should live their lives in anticipation of? What are we aiming for? What is the end of the road for us as Christians? What do we have in our view? At all times, that's what hope is all about, um, and I think that uh, we we de-emphasize it to our peril, because it is it is the end and uh, and reward and aim of everything that we're doing here. With that being said, if there are any who have spiritual need, or if there are any who desire to become a child of God and enter into that hope uh, uh, of resurrection, of being uh, raised and approved and and made a new creature. Um, by by our Lord who was resurrected in that same way, then won't you please make that known as we sing the song that has been announced.